I am so excited to get to share some thoughts, some images, some poems with you tonight. I want to begin my talk by addressing you dearly beloved, because that is how I feel about all of you. This Being at this school is such a blessing, as you all know, and getting to um, read some poems to you and discuss them is a huge blessing for me as well. My talk is not about Melville's Moby Dick, although I am going to quote it once. <laughs> This is what one of the lines in Moby Dick. There are some enterprises in which a careful disorderliness is the true method. And that's going to be the method of my talk tonight. <laughs> okay, so let's just jump right in, and I'm going to read to you a sonnet by Shakespeare, and then we're going to talk about some ideas that I have. Now, um, I, I will warn you, the handout is somewhat misleading. One of the poems on there I will read to you. The other ones I just want you to have. <laughs> so most of this talk you're going to have to use your ears, but that's okay. Poetry is supposed to be that way. Shakespeare's Sonnet 15 begins thus, pondering the immutable mutability of natural things. When I consider everything that grows, holds in perfection but a little moment, that this huge stage presenteth naught but shows, whereon the stars in secret influence comment. When I perceive that men as plants increase, cheered and checked even by the self-same sky, vaunt in their youthful sap, at height decrease, and wear their brave state out of memory, then the conceit of this inconstant stay sets you, most rich, in youth before my sight, where wasteful time debateth with decay to change your day of youth to sullied night, and all in war with time for love of you. As he takes from you, I engraft you new. So, puppets of the planetary influence and plant-like sap, their own physical nature, humans, in this sonnet, are lamented by the speaker as being, in general, the sort of things that dwindle and disappear, both in person and in memory. In particular, what elicits the speaker's anxiety is the thought that the admired young person addressed will inevitably lose the riches of youth. Defying time by making immortal in art the beauty of the youth, this sonnet embodies essential qualities of lyric poetry, as we'll discover tonight. Love of youth and beauty, comparison to and connection with the natural world, which I think ultimately harkens back to the Garden of Eden, and dread of the ravages of time. These are some qualities of lyric poetry. Underlying all of this is a thirst for that which transcends what we experience in the hardships and changeable vicissitudes of earthly existence. Okay, so often when I mention lyric poetry and my love of it to people in general, they, they often recoil, muttering something about not knowing much about that. And, and that shows me that it's a topic um, with which they don't feel comfortable. It's not everyone, but a lot of people are like that. It often feels that to many people, lyric poetry makes as much or rather even less sense than Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, right? Twas brillig and the slithy toves, did gyre and jimble in the wave. I'm here to tell you that such discomfort certainly does not need to be the case. For those of you who are bewildered by lyric poetry, I have some simple suggestions that have helped me navigate and harbor safely in the beautiful bays of insight provided by great lyric poems. For those of you who already love and know these brief and musical sorts of poems, I hope some of these reflections will shine some light more deeply into their nature and life. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Okay, one claim I will make right off the bat is that lyric poetry, like our guardian angels, much ignored, is crucial, crucial and life-saving for the culture, for the inner and interpersonal lives of a people. And by crucial for the culture, I mean much more than being available for the token show-offy use of poets at presidential inaugurations and in especially clever merchandise. 
advertisements. More than enabling people to feel smart or cultured or part of the elite intelligentsia, the erudite, and more than even this, providing texture to the language and fodder for reflection on and improvement of emotions, although I'd say it does serve those latter two purposes. I think there's more to it. God willing, the need for lyric poetry in a culture will be compelling by the end of this talk, but I will give you a hint. It seems to me that a society without true, honest lyric poetry fails to understand itself, fails to allow its people to connect with each other, with nature, and with their divine maker in a fruitful and full human way. This is the way it seems to me. Lyric poetry is in a true sense the first and last utterance of the human voice in response to his maker. Poetic is the voice with which man describes God's own creation of the world, the creation of man, the walking with God in the garden, waiting for God in the belly of the whale, celebrating with God for overcoming the enemies like Judith, longing for God in one's bed at night like David, begging God to save the city from destruction like the prophets, struggling to articulate the vision of God and its strangeness like Ezekiel, inhabiting and uttering God and Israel's own conversation with each other like Solomon and Isaiah, calling upon the Father from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, the vision of God himself. Poetry works by analogy, revealing invisible realities by means of sensible images. We recognize similes when we hear them, right? Everybody here knows about similes. We apprehend the rich image of Odysseus clinging to a shoreline rock on his way to Phaeacia in order to save his life. As when an octopus is dragged away from its shelter, the thickly clustered pebbles stick in the cups of the tentacles, so in contact with the rock, the skin from his bold hands was torn away. For my freshmen. We feel the gentleness and simultaneous shock of mortality in the similes in the Iliad. An example, as a garden poppy bursts into red blooms bend, drooping its head to one side, weighed down by its full seeds in a sudden spring shower, so Gorgytheon's head fell limp over one shoulder, weighed down by his helmet. So we know about images from our epic poet poems that we read. Okay, so steps to reading a poem, and this, this actually can work with epic poems, tragic and comic as well. The steps to reading a poem are simple, very, very simple. First one must, when you're reading it, listen to it. This is the most often skipped step. Feel it without worrying about what it means. Second, one must analyze it, take it apart, look at the grammar, the structure, the word choice, all of the details that our brains delight to discover. Lastly, one must put it together and apprehend the whole. Skipping the first step, especially with lyric poems, is an oft-made mistake and leads to misreadings and a frustration or thwarting of joy and insight that could come from the poem. Um, while we are speaking of how to read a poem, I want to mention something about how not to read a poem, which I find really delightful. So um, two critical nods. Um, one thing that's entirely unhelpful is to look for what the author intended. T.S. Eliot wrote, honest criticism and sensitive appreciation is directed not upon the poet, but upon the poetry. And literary critics W.K. Wimsett Jr. and M.C. Beardsley in 1946 made a crucial distinction about how a poem should be read. They argued that, quote, the design or intention of the author is neither available nor desirable as a standard for judging the success of a work of literary art. They continue, judging a poem is like judging a pudding or a machine. One demands that it work. It is only because an artifact works that we infer the intention of the artificer. A poem should not mean, but be. A poem can be only through its meaning, since its medium is words, yet it is simply is in the sense that we have no excuse for inquiring what part is intended or meant. Poetry is a feat of style by which a complex of meaning is handled all at once, 
Poetry succeeds because all or most of what is said or implied is relevant. What is irrelevant has been excluded, like lumps from pudding and bugs from machinery. And I want to add, and bugs from pudding. In this respect, poetry differs from practical messages, which are successful if and only if we correctly infer the intention. I just want to leave you with that. It's really, really helpful. It means read the poem as it is and don't worry about what the author was thinking. Okay, what is lyric? As I mentioned, poetry sometimes becomes baffling for those of us that consider ourselves regular people. I often encounter people who think poetry is something reserved for a special group of people. Another preconception, different, is that poetry is exclusively about feelings, so that those of us who feel more comfortable with rational matters find the vagueness of such a world off-putting. Seems to me poetry in actuality is among the most rational aspects of human culture. Like music, it engages humans on multiple levels, and to an irrational creature with only feelings and no intellect, poetry would mean nothing. Likewise, to a hypothetical creature with only reasoning powers and no sense, emotions, or imagination, poetry would not work either. Accordingly, approaching lyric poetry more as one does songs than as one does instructional speech is most useful. When we hear a song, we usually notice how it feels before we learn the words. And that feel informs the meaning of the song. Right? We can tell if it's happy or sad or angry or anxious. And then when we start learning what the words mean, that feel affects the whole. And I've done this, just so you know. This is very possible um, with my students. If you read a poem and then just talk about how it feels, just feeling, not what it means, and no judgment, you'll realize even though it seems subjective, it's actually pretty objective. Like when you read something that's a poem, you can feel it. Just as the oscilloscope can detect the vibrations and mark out pitches of music, but cannot detect the dynamic qualities, as Zucker Candle indicates, so without hearing how the song feels, we do not have the full experience of actual music. Likewise, the feeling of a lyric poem, the texture of the words, informs the meaning and should be apprehended before the denotations of the sentences are even analyzed. So lyric poetry in particular, in contrast with epic or comic or tragic poetry, well, let's see, Aristotle distinguishes these four sorts and he mention briefly mentions but doesn't say much about dithyrambic. This form, also called lyric from the lyre, the musical instrument, is often associated with brief, subjective, and usually musical utterances of a solitary voice. Until the 20th century, according to Jonathan Culler, who's the author of a recent book called The Theory of Lyric, the lyric poem was a written form that represents itself as an oral form. And this traditional association with the oral form highlights its musicality. However, these criteria are not exhaustive nor exact, this literary genre is flexible and eludes a firm grasp on its structural properties. I want to talk not about its structure, however. We could spend the whole night talking about sonnets versus villanelles on meter and metaphor and metonymy and chiasmus and a whole kettle full of fun rhetorical terms. But instead of this, it seems more important right now for the pursuit of wisdom to spend time exploring the form of lyric poetry rather than its structure. And by form, I mean something like the substantial form of a living creature, like a slug, or a squid, or a toad. What makes it alive? The difference in form between a toad made of clay and a real toad. One can get up and hop around. The soul or life of lyric poetry is like the invisible and individual spirit that animates the visible body of an animal. It is what makes it to be what it is but as a single being and also as the sort of being that it is. Thus, the form of a lyric poem both makes it to be the individual utterance that it is and places it in the lyric world as opposed to the world of tragedy or epic. And I'll make some distinctions as we go through to explain what that means, but you are welcome to ask me about it if I don't satisfy your questions in the Q&A. Okay, so let's read and hear and think about some lyric poems and hopefully the liniments of this literary genre will, re will reveal themselves in all their splendor. Okay, 
So, um, yes, toads and flamingos. So why are we, and why am I talking about that? Well, I, this is the way it seems to me. Animals show up in lyric poems with frequency and power. And I think one could say that toads and flamingos could be seen to represent two distinctive aspects that lyric poetry emphasizes. One, the reality of our earthly corporeal existence. And then the other one, the transcendent transformative power of beauty. We're all familiar with the animals and the similes in the Iliad. Here's one of my favorites from book 13. And this is an epic poem, not a lyric. But swift Aeus, the son of Oileus, would not at all now take his stand apart from Telamonian Aeus, not even a little, but as two wine-colored oxen straining with even force drag the compacted plow through the fallow land. But both of them, at the base of the horns, the dense sweat gushes. Only the width of the polished yoke keeps a space between them as they toil down the furrow till the share cuts the edge of the plowland. So these two took their stand in battle, close to each other. So this epic simile, in a way, by contrast, shows what lyric is not. So the use of analogy in the place of animals, still crucial, epic and lyric. Um, but the epic poem has different literary laws of physics, so to speak, than the lyric. So the animals are different. These oxen are sweating, forging ahead, breaking the soil side by side with each other, making way for seeds of crops, agricultural transformation of the land, changing the earth from one way of being to another. Likewise, the two Aeses or Ajaxes are standing firmly side by side, fighting in a battle that proved seminal for Western civilization. Both as the story of the Battle of Troy and as a revered and dynamic poem about gods and men, the Iliad as epic, marks the end of something and the beginning of something huge for the generations on the earth. Lyric is different. So the special relationship discovered in lyric poetry between humans and animals shows that their lives are vitally interwoven, that the life of animals is inextricably connected to mankind's destiny as he is drawn closer to his creator. So the animals were given as the first gifts in the garden to Adam, even before Eve. And it seems like in lyric poems, there's somehow a kind of memory of that, a memory of the original garden before the fall ever happened. Partners in earthly suffering, these living animals accompanied Noah and his family in the ark, and they become the stand-ins for sinful humans and the sacrifices of the old law. There's an image in the, a brief paradisal moment in Euripides' The Bacchae, where the worshippers of Dionysus nurse wolf cubs and deer fawns at their breasts. There's this paradisal vision in Isaiah of God's future where the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and a little child shall lead them. This is the union that Lyric longs for, not only between people and between people and God, but also all of creation. And animals in some way in Lyric poems seem to feel it. In some real sense, poems are like the love songs that God sings to man and the song that humans sing back. But animals are interwoven in this. So the lyric voice is, and w I'll read you a few that are pretty amazing, but um, the, this ardent longing, while we're on the topic, of the lyric voice is perfectly embodied, embodied in Psalm 42. So it seems to me the Psalms in some ways are the origin of the lyric voice. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me continually, where is your God? This love between God and humans is echoed in the longing the poet feels for the beloved, but the image is one of deer longing for flowing streams. This longing is for the unfallen natural world, but also for a, a cosmic communion of living beings. Abyssus ad abyssum invocar invoce, cataractarum tuarum omnia celsa tua, et fluctis tui super ne transierunt. The depths of God call to the depths in the man, and out of these deep interior places come the lyric call. So, before we get to the animal poems in particular, I want to talk a little bit just about longing because it will, it will be very important. So there's a restlessness that the lyric voice has. It's dissatisfied with mortality and civilization. Um, 
An example is Samuel Daniels, um, Sonnet 6. Fair is my love, and cruel as she's fair, for had she not been fair and thus unkind, my muse had slept, and none had known my mind. The longing after the beloved, as a heart thirsts for the running water. This thirst is there for a human beloved, but it's also by extension a thirst for the strong living God. This longing for a wholeness that's impossible on earth reaches and stretches to be enlivened by God. When Dante looks down from the highest point of paradise and acknowledges the love that moves the sun and other stars, he captures up in himself the culmination of the lyric conversation between creator and creature, giving a glimpse of the longed-for consummation. So, these levels of longing are expressed in different ways. The most basic level is earthly urges, and it climbs the summit all the way up to the conscious striving for God. In a true sense, desire, an irreplaceable part of the soul, is the motive force of lyric poetry, and behind that desire is the hunger for insight, as one critic, Louise Callan, puts it, for the wisdom that is the invisible reality of being. So this longing that starts with just basic instincts and goes all the way up to the love for God, she says, is part of one continuum that ultimately is striving for wisdom. In poems like John Donne's The Flea and Andrew Marvel's To His Coy Mistress, the lower levels of desire find expression. The speaker in The Flea makes a witty argument for his base request, quote, mark but this flea and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. The speaker's specious contention is that the blood is mingled in the flea that bit both he and she, bit her. Why not do something else that mingles blood? He continues, O stay, three lives in one flea spare, where we almost, nay, more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is. He's wily. The, the speaker, it's a really witty poem. I recommend you look it up. The speaker in Andrew Marvel's To His Coy Mistress makes a more expansive argument. Had we but world enough in time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. In hyperbolic extension of an image that is typical of so-called metaphysical poets like Marvel and Dunn, this speaker stretches the images of love in a hypothetical world where time is not limited. In this world, he says, my vegetable love would grow vaster than empires and more slow. An hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. In this real world that we live in, however, the speaker continues, time is not unlimited. But at my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Because time is in charge, correspondingly humans have a limited time to live, and an even more limited time for earthly love. Having made the argument of contrast between the hypothetical fantasy world of timelessness and the actual world where people die and their bodies decay and then they get worms in them and it's really gross, the poem ends with an exhortation. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may. And now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. <laughs> it's pretty persuasive. <laughs> Ostensibly seeking the same thing that the speaker in the flea was seeking. This speaker, in contrast, though, it ends on a note of defiance against the aggressive ravages of time, advocating an active eating of time rather than sitting back to be eaten maggot-like by time. 
So the longing in lyric is not limited to sexual desire, though. Se uh, desire for experience, insight, sensation, for knowledge of real living things also recurs in these poems. An example of this is the flamingos. There they are. I promised you flamingos. By Rainier Maria Rilke. Written in German, this English translation I'm about to read to you conveys the seductive power of the ungainly birds that entices the speaker. In these Fragonard-like mirrorings, no more of their white and pink is proffered than if a man said of his mistress, so soft she was with sleep. Then stepping up into the grass and standing slightly turned on pink stems, blossoming together, as in a flower bed, they seduce themselves more seductively than Phryne herself, and then extending their necks, burrow the paleness of their eyes into their own softness, in which black and fruit red lies hidden. Immediately shrieks of jealousy go through the aviary, but already, astonished, they have stretched themselves and stride off one by one into the imaginary. You know how flamingos, like, put their, like, in their in their feathers, right? Um, so this <laughs> that's that's what he's describing. Phryne too uh, mentioned there she was a she was a um, Athenian courtesan in the fourth century BC. This is a fun connection. Her name intriguingly means toad, reportedly because of her sallow complexion. <laughs> Don't worry, she's not the last toad I have for you. I've got more. This lyric takes the image of human allure and extends it to the beauty of birds. And I have to confess, I am partial to this, to this poem because of the jealousy in the aviary. I imagine it a cage full of envious parrots, probably because my roommate is a very jealous cockatoo. That part's true. In the water, <laughs> the birds are seen in mirror images as Fragonard-like. He was an 18th century French painter, painter of lavish, dramatic, often hedonistic subjects. Um, but when they're just reflected in the water, these flamingos, they don't offer more detailed allure than a gentle comment by a man about his mistress. So soft she was with sleep. It's not, there's not a lot of detail there. Um, stepping out of the water, though, the flamingos reveal more of them themselves blossoming together, seducing themselves. Now, Phryne, that they're compared to, she was known for arresting onlookers with her unclad body. But the flamingos surpass this effortlessly as they bury the paleness of their eyes, that curved cuddle that flamingos give to themselves as they hide their heads in their own feathers. This all reveals something desirable and yet removed. Beyond desire for pleasure or even experience is a distinctively lyric longing, an overarching thirst that exists in all lyric beyond the sensible, for a place, a time, somewhere to be that's outside of the constraints, the rigors, and oppressions of law, decay, sickness, and mortality. William Blake's little lyric exhibits this gentle, plaintive longing aptly. Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet, golden clime where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. The yearning in the flower with the big yellow face that makes it turn to follow the sun moves the speaker of this poem to express his own desire for a realm where those who have died in their desire and cold unfulfillment can rise and enter a warm and welcoming home. Of course, some of the most ardent poems of longing are John Donne's holy sonnets. I think I did give you this one. Um, in Batter My Heart, the speaker pleads with God to break his resistance. Don't worry about it too much, though. Just listen to me. It's dark out there. He longs to long for God. He's frustrated that he's not longing as much as he wants to be longing. Batter my heart, three-person God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine 
and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, overthrow me. And bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me. Untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. The speaker requests more violent manner of attack, lamenting the ineffectiveness of God's hitherto gentle approach. The speaker expresses the frustration of finding what St. Paul calls a law of sin which is in my members. It's taken him captive. Yet dearly I love you, the speaker cries, but am betrothed to your enemy. Without the more active, even aggressive intervention of God to break the speaker's enslavement, he will not be rescued. The poem ends with a striking extension of this desire to be manhandled by God to the realm of love, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. Although, remembering the Greek myths of Zeus with Europa, Io, Leda, Danae, this image at least has precedent. Zeus stealing away his beloved, even if it is still shocking. Still part of what makes lyrics so arresting is the transformation of language into something that calls the reader beyond themselves into this realm of longing with all our earthly selves for something heavenly. All of these poems manifest the longing in a manner that William H. Lynch calls, and this is very important, so listen closely, a narrow, direct path through the finite. He continues, with every plunge through or down into the real contours of being, this is a quote, Father Lynch, the imagination also shoots up into insight, but in such a way that the plunge down causally generates the plunge up. That was from a book called Christ and Apollo. The way towards transcendence, towards God in the lyric world, means entering fully into the reality of the created, physical, sensible world. Skipping this, often messy, almost always inconvenient and indirect, seeming sidetrack, right? You want to get up to God, but you got to go down to the earthy things first. It seems like you're going the wrong way. I it's into the corporeal, but skipping it will only end in abstraction from the real world, which lyric cannot stand. Can't stand abstraction. Speaking of Dante, and this is more about abstraction, in the uh, an essay called The Symbolic Imagination, literary critic Alan Tate defines a particular method of poetic operation. To bring together various meanings at a single moment of action is to exercise what I shall speak of here as the symbolic imagination. The symbolic imagination conducts an action through analogy of the human to the divine, of the natural to the supernatural, of the low to the high, of time to eternity. And Tate chooses, as an example of this symbolic imagination, a passage from St. Catherine of Siena's writing, where she visits a man unjustly condemned and is present for his execution. And she describes, this is extraordinary, because she's sitting there, she's ministered to him as he's getting near his death, and then he asks her to be there when he dies, and she actually catches his head in her lap. And as this happened, she describes smelling at one time the dead man's blood and the blood of the lamb. These simultaneous and yet seemingly disparate, even opposed sensations might be said to dwell in the origins of the Christian mode of allegory. Seems like the origins of the Christian mode of allegory is sacraments, Christian sacraments. It seems to me, whether literary critics will admit it or not, this one does, that this is what lyric longs for, a connection with God, but not apart from or abstracted out of living corporeal creatures, through them. That's what the sacramental allows, makes possible. 
Not only does the lyric draw its focus on finding the spiritual aspect of reality through the material wor world, but as one critic claims, lyric is also important for preserving this spirit in a community. There can be no genuine sacramental life for a society, no genuine culture, without the lyric, and the lyric itself cannot exist without a lively sense of the transcendent. Some modern poems identify the problems that occur when Eros goes wrong in individuals and culture, and this is another thing that lyric sometimes addresses. An example is Sailing to Byzantium by William Butler Yeats. In this poem, the speaker seeks to flee a fertile world, actually, deploring a place where young love and animal jubilation can only occur in a natural cycle that leads always back towards death. So love, earthly love's not a consolation to this speaker. It begins, right, that is no country for old men. Um, part of the poem reads this, this way, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl, command all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies. But the speaker's solution to this dilemma is to seek another land, to get out of nature. Once out of nature, I shall never take, he says, my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make, of hammer gold and gold enameling. This image where the soul can shed its ties to a dying animal and rather be gathered into the artifice of eternity provides a hopeful alternative through art for the human to achieve more than the inevitable earthward tilt of biological processes. I'd say it's probably not enough, but it's one way that Lyric is addressing it. Okay, um, uh, there's another poem by John Crow Ransom called Man Without Sense of Direction, and... Um, I couldn't give you all of these poems, and I can't read them all to you, but if you let me know, what I can do is I can make a list so that you can look them up. I Just talk to me, and I will make that available. So this poem's called Man Without Sense of Direction. It's amazing and strange. And, and this poem talks about a failure of physical desire, how that threatens not only a community of people, but even the relation of individuals to nature, and by extension, God. So this man, he doesn't understand why, but he... There's, a, there's something wrong with his relation with his wife. And the way that the speaker describes him is he can, cannot fathom nor perform his nature. Um, it seems to me that looking at Plato's Phaedrus helps understand these kinds of poems. Right? In Plato's Phaedrus, he describes the soul as having as a chariot that has two horses, a dark horse and a light horse. And he, he also talks about the importance of wings for getting to God. He calls the wing the corporeal element which is most akin to the divine. And he says the God of love himself has wings. But without the wings of Eros, the soul lacks the strength to combat death. And one could think of the Song of Songs, right? Love is stronger than death. That the images that God uses to speak to his people and to motivate them to get to him is one of desire. So similarly, as I just mentioned, the other image of the soul in the Phaedrus is this dark horse and light horse. Now, without the dark horse, the dark horse is the one that wants to run up to the beautiful one and whisper naughty things, right? Um, the light horse is the one that says, oh, the beautiful, the beloved, I'm not going to go near. And so they're fighting because they're both yoked together. And the dark horse is like, let's go get her. And the white horse is like, no, we can't go near her, right? <laughs> um, but without the dark, they end up agreeing, I'm uh, not agreeing, but they end up getting near the beloved, which is the dark horse's job, but the light horse keeps him from doing anything bad, right? So it's good. They get there, but they don't, they don't embarrass themselves too terribly. Okay, <laughs> this is an image of the soul, mind you, um, from Plato. Okay, so without the dark horse, ignoring the restraints and reprimands of the charioteer and the light-colored horse, the charioteer is also saying, no, 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 don't do anything bad, dark horse. Um, none of them would ever approach the beloved. Lyric poetry somehow knows this and reminds us that, like in that poem from John Crow Ransom, if you thwart Eros, or if, if Eros is thwarted somehow by the culture, technology, abstraction, what happens is that there's a, a limb, it's like there's a vital limb of the soul, the wings, and it's being amputated. And this lames the soul and robs her of the power to seek and find her proper end. It's not just about boy-girl love. It's also about 
insight and wisdom and love of nature and ultimately, most importantly, love of God. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, one thing that Lyric really hates is abstraction. Part of how it shows this antipathy is dwelling deeply in the image as opposed to the idea. Not that there are no ideas in poems, but the touchstone, the foundation, the reality of everything is always the image. And a good poem can never be reduced to ideas. I want to read you just one more critical thing and then a couple poems and then I'll be done. Um, there's a book called The World's Body by John Co. Ransom who wrote that other poem and he wrote this amazing thing about images and ideas. He said, the image, which is not remarkable in any particular way, is marvelous in its assemblage of many properties. So it's not remarkable in any particular way, but because of all of the properties it is. A manifold of properties, like a mine or a field, something to be explored for its properties. There's a richness to the image. He also writes, we love to view the world under universal or scientific ideas to which we give the name truth, and this is because the ideas seem to make not for righteousness but for mastery. But the image cannot be mastered. And this is, I think, partly why sometimes people are bothered by poetry because they can't master it. But if we realize we're not supposed to master it, it really is, reading a poem really is kind of like looking at a toad, right? We don't expect to master the toad. We, we apprehend it. <laughs> We learn about it. Okay, so yeah, image won't be mastered. Neither will a good lyric poem any more than a toad or a flea or a flamingo. We can capture them and kill them, but we cannot control or comprehend their essence. We can learn more and more about them, though. Lyric knows this and continues to present man with the desirable objects as something beyond us, luring us to move outside our own avaricious inclinations. Okay, I want to talk to you about lamentation a little bit. Um, not all lyric poems leave their hearers at peace. Often they bring discomfort. The speaker of Rilke's archaic torso of Apollo allows that we cannot know his legendary head, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside like a lamp. He's looking at a, like a statue of Apollo, but the head's gone. In which his gaze, now turned to low, glooms in all its power. The uncomfortable image of a mysteriously radiant, headless statue that somehow is still looking at us, the observers, culminates with a, the direct and arguably confrontational line, you must change your life. This shaking up that Lyric accomplishes is never merely aimed at discouragement or chaos for its own sake, not in true, real, good Lyric poems. The Lyric spirit always longs for the primal and ultimate communion of human, natural, and supernatural worlds. When longing itself has been forgotten in a community, however, it needs to be awakened Sometimes this longing gives way to lament. Now, lamentations does not mean hopelessness. Lamentation is without comfort, though, as in the book of Lamentations, um, in book one, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter one, line one. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She weeps bitterly in the night, tears on her cheek among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. This is what keeps recurring in Lamentations. There's a poem also by Rilke, also in German, but there is an English translation that I want to read to you, and it's called Lament. It captures the elements of lyric lament really well. Oh, how far away everything is, and long since gone, I think that the star from which I receive radiance has been dead for thousands of years. I think from the boat drifting past I heard some frightening words. Inside the house a clock has struck. In which house? I would like to step out of my heart, to walk under the immense sky. I would like to pray. And one of all these stars must surely still exist. I think I might know which alone of them endures like a white city standing in the heavens at the end of the ray. The speaker sees and expresses a sense of distance and loss in the parallel images of long defunct stars and dysfunctional human relationships. What we see is a sign of something else, but is it even really still there? The light we see is a sign of a star, 
but the joy at the sight is mitigated by the belief that the star itself maybe no longer exists. Likewise, people together in a boat might be imagined to find joy in each other, but now the speaker hears something frightening was said. The end of the life of the star, the possible end of the life of a relationship, these ends are echoed in the clock having struck in the house. Has the clock merely finished its striking for the hour? Has it stopped working altogether? The longing beyond longing exists at the heart of lament. This line, I would like to walk out of my heart, to walk under the immense sky. The heart of man sometimes is not enough, sometimes broken by the world. But poetic wisdom retains a secret conveyed in lyric lamentation that somewhere beyond feeling, beyond thought, beyond even conscious belief, there is help possible. That is why all true lament is a prayer. I would like to pray the speaker says. Even when hope seems impossible, the desire to have the desire, the desire to ask for help, even when the power to ask for help seems absent, is conveyed in the liniments of lamentation. Okay, I think I gave you Robert Frost bereft. I don't have time to read it. Um, there is another amazing poem called The Pardon by Richard Wilbur, um, where the speaker remembers as a young boy leaving his dog unburied, repelled by the sights and smells of death. He said, I who had loved him when he still kept alive, the speaker laments, when only close enough to where he was to sniff the heavy honeysuckle smell, mixed with another odor heavier still, and hear the flies' intolerable buzz. His ten-year-old self feared and avoided the decomposing animal, in my kind world, the dead were out of range, and I could not forgive the sad or strange in beast or man. In a recent dream, however, the adult speaker is visited by the same deceased dog when he's adult. Suddenly, this dead dog appears to him again, like rising out of the ground. I felt afraid again, but still he came in the carnal sun clothed in a hymn of flies, and death was breathing in his lively eyes. The same repulsive details of death come back to confront the speaker, moving him to cry and call his name, asking forgiveness of his tongueless head. Thus, in the pardon, heartbreak, heartbroken and guilty over the neglect of the dead dog deepens the speaker's heart. So you see, animals do have a special place in lyric lamentation. In epic, animals live at the center of the human relationships to each other. A great example is the immortal horses in the Iliad. They're weeping disconsolately, disconsolately over Patroclus' death, right? But in lyric poems, there's more time, more stillness to contemplate. In epic, you've always got to go somewhere. You've got to found a city. You've got to fight a war. You've got to get home, right? You've got to go. But in lyric, there's time to sit, contemplate, grieve, long, Often the animals are the corporeal part of nature that allows the poet to weep over the fallenness of the world, to lament the loss of our original blessedness and deathless state. Okay, there's another amazing poem called The Groundhog by Richard Eberhardt that is a lot like The Pardon. Um, and in this one, the speaker in June saw a groundhog lying dead. Dead lay he, my senses shook and mind outshot our naked frailty. With him... He keeps going back every year to see the decomposing groundhog carcass. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> oh, sorry, it should have been dead animals in lyric poetry, huh? No. Um, but finally he returns after three years and senses he has witnessed something larger about the cosmos. So he, he notices how it's fading, how it doesn't respond to him. At first he's repulsed, but then he starts to feel like there's a larger order here. There's something, something lost and something true. It has been three years now. There is no sign of the groundhog. I stood there in the whirling summer. My hand capped a withering, withered heart and thought of China and of Greece, of Alexander in his tent, of Montaigne in his tower, of St. Teresa in her wild lament. And it's her feast day today, so I had to read this. The physical traces of the groundhog have disappeared. In art he remains, but death continues to be something wrong, something lyric cannot stand. It laments that death has to happen at all, remembering the world before death was part of it. Okay, um, I have to finish. So, lyric is love, 
um, you get the picture. I spend a lot of time on lamentation, but I will just tell you a little bit about one love poem. Um, there's So longing is a kind of love, but the final kind of love, if we talk about longing and then lamentation, then there's a kind of love that is a kind of union. So Dante, when he finally sees Beatrice I in um, Purgatorio 32, he's so intent on finding satisfaction for the, his eyes' ten-year thirst that every other sense was spent. But finally, he looks so long that he hurts his eyes looking at her. And the condition, he says, that afflicts the sight when eyes have just been struck by the sun's force left me without my vision for a time. Mortal human faculties can only withstand so much sight, so much revelation, so much bliss before weakening. Correspondingly, in lyric, which kind of knows that it's in this world, the moments of bliss or consummation are usually very brief. John Donne has a poem called The Ecstasy. That is, it's remarkable and magnificent, and you need to get to know it. But in here, it describes that sense of consummation, and this is in, like, as a union of souls. So he, the lovers um, are spoken of in this way. When love with one another so interanimates two souls, that abler soul, which thence doth flow, defects of loneliness controls. So the weaknesses that the two had before, before their souls are intertwined like this. And he's, uh, he says the way that they get intertwined is by twisting their eye beams together and holding hands. So well, there's more to it than that, but... Um. <laughs> Their, their union is one soul entirely, but because most of the world does not comprehend such a love, and most people come into this poem and think, oh, that's another naughty poem, John Donne, but it's, it's more than that. The speaker offers the witness of their bodies to reveal these realities. This is how the poem ends. To our bodies turn we then, that so weak men on love revealed may look. Love's mysteries in souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. And if some lover such as we have heard this dialogue of one, let him still mark us. He shall see small change when we are to bodies gone. So it seems to me what he's saying is that people can't really understand the soul love. They need to see bodies. And that's the way that we learn. And that's the way lyric poetry works as well, through a tangible image, instead of just talking about the abstraction. Okay, um, now... I need to give you a toad. So, I wish we had more time. All right, um, about animals. I wonder, I've been wondering this, especially because of the readings in mass today. Um, in, in poetry, birds often serve to connect with or even to embody divinities. So we see this in the Iliad, we see it in the Odyssey. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if part of that might be what was read today in the gospel by Christ that there's something, one, I mean, there's something about birds, like the Greeks, right, in the Iliad think that the gods send messages from the birds, right? And sometimes the gods, like, look like birds when they fly away. Um, so they'll send portents, and they'll sometimes look like birds. There's a sense that birds get to go from earth to heaven, right? So in some ways, it's almost like they might be glowing from their witnessing the gods, like Moses did after talking to God face to face. There's something in birds that seems to be closer to the divine. I'm wondering if perhaps that kinship that lyric poets feel for animals at its deepest level and to its the likeness Christ himself made in today's gospel reading from Luke, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So God cares about the sparrows. He cares even more about you. It's a similar argument in the book of Job, right? It seems like lyric poetry, even when the poet doesn't conscious, isn't consciously thinking of this, it almost exists in the world, whether the people are re religious or not, but they're intuiting this reality. Okay, on occasion, all of these elements of lyric we have explored come together in one poem. It seems to me Richard Wilbur's The Death of a Toad from 1950 is an example of this miraculous coalescence. Longing, lamentation, and a sense of loving union all come together in this humble, gentle lyric. A toad, the power mower caught. This is serious stuff. Shush. <laughs> You'll be crying by the end. 
chewed and clipped of a leg, where the hobbling hop has got to the garden verge and sanctuaried him under the cineraria leaves in the shade of the ashen and heart-shaped leaves in a dim, low, and a final glade. The rare original heart's blood goes, spends in the earth and hide, in the folds and wizenings, flows in the gutters of the banked and staring eyes. He lies as still as if he would return to stone, and soundlessly attending, dies towards some deep monotone, toward misted and ebullient seas and cooling shores, toward lost amphibia's emperies, Day dwindles, drowning, and at length is gone in the wide and antique eyes which still appear to watch across the castrate lawn the haggard daylight steer. This kinship that we share with others of God's creatures is evoked and deepened by these stanzas as the toad is injured by the inexorability of man-made machines. Rather than raging, however, this animal finds sanctuary under the leaves of striking, brightly colored flowers. The rare original heart's blood, the liquid of life that only God can create, spends in the earth and hide, leaking out over a skin made like ours from the muddy elements we have in common with the dirt, the ground. Lying as still as if he would return to stone, and whether this would be to elements from which he'd been composed or to a garden gargoyle, or maybe it's a reference to the stones that come, or they were thought to come from the heads of toads in medieval Britain. It turned out they were fossilized fish teeth, but people thought they came out of the head of toads. Um, whether it's any of those, he's soundlessly attending, listening without any noise. And he dies toward some deep monotone. That's arresting, it seems to me, the image of dying towards something, and that something is a deep monotone. Although he's silent, his death orients towards a mysterious single sound. The misted and ebullient seas and cooling shores evoke the memory of the waters over which the Spirit of God hovered, the first emergence of the land from the waters in Genesis. Once the toad passes, he becomes somehow part of an ancient heritage of all creatures. So far back it is beyond memory, in the yard, somehow, something is missing. The day dwindles, drowning, and is gone. The lawn is castrate, almost amputated, and the day has become drained of something, haggard. Still the watching of the wide and antique eyes reminds those of us still left in this fallen world of the existence of another world, far away, yet so near, that it is only on the other side of death. Okay, so to conclude briefly, one of the secrets of lyric, it seems to me, is that the levels of lamentation, longing, and union with the beloved are not only the voice of humans relating to nature and to each other, not even merely the communication between a people and their God. The Gospels reveal that the plaintive songs of the prophets were foreshadowing a God who loves his creation so much as to become a suffering man, filled with feelings of longing for his people, lamentation over their unfaithfulness and his father's seeming distance, and a desire for a consummation of union between himself, his father, and his church. Oh, Jerusalem, Christ exclaims. Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here, all three levels of lyric are expressed by the God who has loved so much that he labors, longing to bring his people to himself, longs to be united with them in love. Their resistance means that great pain and desolation will ensue, but a hope of reunion is, expe is expressed as well. Cardinal Ratzinger said, the beautiful wounds, but this is exactly how it summons man to his final destiny. What Plato said in the Phaedrus has nothing to do with superficial aestheticism or or irrationalism, or with the flight from clarity and the importance of reason. The beautiful is knowledge certainly, but in a superior form, since it arouses man to the real greatness of the truth. So, I have lots more to that I could say to you. It strikes me that technology does kind of, is kind of digging under our, um, 
love for the true and the good and our ability to interact with each other in a like present way through our senses. But lyric poetry is something that's been sent to help with that because it takes us to this narrow, direct path through the finite. True and great lyric poetry comes from God in a real sense and is always ultimately ordered towards God. Lyric poets, in the words of one critic, are secular prophets, and they capture up and preserve the hidden timeless wisdom, not merely of a culture, but of the natural and divine. Okay, thank you. Thank you.